the National Arts Center is a three-wing circus tonight. There's a beer party down the hall. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot is uh, celebrating the release of a new documentary film about him downstairs. And yet, I'm happy to report that the audience here tonight is as big as it ever is, and there's been a lot of interest in this event. When we started doing this a year ago, um, long-form conversations with Canadian newsmakers, we didn't want to be too startling in our choices. So we had people who want to be prime minister, people who have been prime minister, people who are prime minister. Um, he may not come back. Um, it's, it's not him, it's me. Um, and uh, this year we're experimenting a bit more, seeing really kind of enlarging our definition of what constitutes Canadian newsmakers. And I was really happy when we were able to get Joanne Liu, who's the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières, to come during a visit uh, to Canada from her uh, Geneva headquarters and really from the world, which is her theater. And she's going to talk about the extraordinary, uh, important and challenging work that Médecins Sans Frontières does. So please welcome Dr. Joanne Liu. You grew up in Charlebourg, outside Quebec City. Um, strangely, it's a city that I know well. I worked there a couple summers when I was a student. Um, and your parents ran a restaurant. Um, how does one become an international humanitarian physician from, 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 from Charlebourg? Give me the short version, say 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, good evening. Um, well, Charlebourg, I think um, I remember when I was young and um, to figure it out, like looking in the phone book, because back then we had phone books, that uh, there were three Liu in Charlebourg and they were my two uncle and my father. And uh, I just figured out that uh, very soon though, there wasn't many uh, visible minority and I've promised myself that I will leave from here as soon as possible. Really? Yes. Because it was so hard back then. I think it would be completely a different business today, but back then it was so hard. Like first day at school, came back, blood. And my, my parents looked at me and said, my mom looked at me and said, what happened? And then I said, I said, they told me I had a flat nose. And, 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 and I think that, that it really, you know, like I'm a pediatrician. Kids are cruel. Yeah, they are. They mm. are. So, so, so this is one of the things that, that I just say, I, I was like really small, I told my father I'm going to leave, and we all left very early back then. But I think now it's completely a different dynamic and, and it's much more diverse. But I think this is that's one of the drive to just say, I'm going to move on. Huh. It's interesting, Robert Carroll, who's written the uh, epic biography of Lyndon Johnson, says if you want to understand why he became president, look at, he was, look at what he was moving away from. And uh, that, that can often be quite a motivation. I'm from Sarnia and I liked it. Um, maybe, maybe that's why I topped out at Magazine Colonist. Um, uh, and if I understand correctly, it was some uh, news images from Biafra that uh, really got you interested in medicine as a vocation. Well, I'm, when I was young, because, because that's, that's in the 70s, uh, so I was quite small, um, it's the fact that it was the first time we were seeing live a crisis in, in, uh, on TV. And I remember very well when I was young, you know, your parents always uh, basically told you and, and threat you that if you're not finished 
you, you're male, you're gonna end up you know, like those kids in Biafra. And to a point when I was small, I thought that Biafra just meant skinny. And so, um, um, and then afterwards, I think for me more the drive was when I was a teenager and then like any very good teenager, I went to like a, a quest for sense. And so I read different books in my life. And then one of the book I read is the, is the book on, uh, by uh, Camus called The Plague. And um, I still love that book. I read it regularly. But um, one sentence really stuck with me. And then since then, uh, and it's that very simple sentence that when the doctor, the protagonist of the book, is being asked, but what is driving you? You know, people are dying around you. You don't have anything to give them. You're not even a Christian. How do you manage? And the doctor answer, I never got used to death. I don't know more. And I thought that back then, in my head, I just said my promise to myself was I'll never get used to death. I will never banalize and trivial death. That's it. And then it, for me was the sort of the promise for, for, for life, basically. Okay. It's interesting because Medicine on Frontier itself Doctors Without Borders, I, I assume I don't have to translate, um, was also founded around the Biafra conflict. That was yeah. sort of the spur of... Can you give us sort of the short version of, of, of MSF's mandate, function? Uh, what is it that it does? I figure it's better you explain it than I, than, than I try. Well, there's a romanticized view about MSF. There's a bunch of MSF here who could probably explain it much better than me. But the thing is, it's basically, yes, was born in 1971, and, and the legion about MSF is that uh, a bunch of doctors and, and, uh, and uh, journalists, so 12 people, 56 of them were doctors, six of them were journalists, and they just said, we want to go and be able to work somewhere, uh, and, uh, and as well be able to talk about it. And these were people who were from, some of them from the Red Cross, because they came back from the, from the Bafia and they just said, we cannot speak on what we saw, and we think that we have to tell the world that this is not as it is portrayed. And so, so that, that sort of ethos of MSF, of anchor in action, doing something, but as well being able to bear witness about things, and if necessary, do denunciation about the situation, was a bit, you know, how MSF is working. And the core principle of how we do things is neutrality, independence, and impartiality. So that's about it in a nutshell. Okay. There have been debates going back to the founding of MSF about that notion of bearing witness, témoignage, the idea that you don't just um, uh, give help, um, but that you let the world know what it is that, that you're seeing and the, the environment that you're functioning in. Is that still... Um, I, I mean, that's still at the core of what MSF does. Well, it is to a certain extent, but I, I, I'm always very cautious. Uh, our, we bear witness because we do things, but we will not just go somewhere, watch people, and then talk about it. So we're going to care for people in crisis, and then we just say, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what is happening. But we, the, um, the bearing witness and denunciation will not go without doing something, unless we're somewhere where we cannot act and we want to denounce that. And this is what happened in 1999 with North Korea. Okay. Um, you are the second Canadian to be international president after James Orbinski, who accepted the Nobel Prize on behalf of MSF in 1999. And you're the first international president to have been 
in the position for two terms, for six years, which is ending next month. Um, why did you want to, how did you get involved in the MSF and why did you want to um, uh, run the joint? Simple question. <laughs> um, so, so during that time, right after I read uh, The Plague from Camus, I read a book called uh, La Paix Docteur, and it's a surgeon who worked with MSF for several years, a French doctor, and I was really, really struck by, uh, by what happened to him and how, in what he was engaged and the kind of what he was doing, and I said, that's really cool. So I wanted to do that, but I was one of those kids who, who wanted to be, um, to do things differently, really believe in community life, so I ended up doing Ketimevic right after uh, high school. After that, I did Canadian Crossroad. And when I was in Canadian Crossroad at 18 years old in, in West Africa, I just said, oh, that's it. I'm going to go back and work in developing countries. And, that, and after that, every single decision for studying and professional decision were geared to make sure I will have an exportable job and be able to work in, in developing countries. And this, if, you know, I wanted to go in crisis zones, so what I ended up doing is pediatrics, because I said there's children, there's so many children in developing countries. But I said I want to be able to go in war zones. So I ended up doing my trauma uh, medicine in uh, NYU in New York. Yeah, at, at which hospital again? Bellevue. Bellevue, and it was rough. Yeah, back then, it was a little bit dull, yeah. Okay. Um, um, so you, you join MSF, you, you become the um, international president, and I uh, just heard tonight that your first trip after you became president was into Syria. Is that right? Yes. Tell me about that trip. I have spies everywhere. We spy, yeah. <laughs> so, so I started, I was elected in June 2013 and I started my mandate in fall. And then it was, 2013 was the crisis was Syria, and I said, I need to go. And then one of the things that I, 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 I made uh, somehow um, the commitment to was, I'm going to speak about things that I know. And so, as I said, I need to somehow understand much better Syria. It was really tough back then. So um, was still, I practiced as a full-time uh, ER doc until uh, October 2013. So what I did, I just said, I'm going to go as a doctor, I'm as an as a ER physician. So I went undercover and worked for two weeks in, uh, in uh, northeastern Syria. And um, we didn't tell the staff because it was, there was one part for my security, uh, but the other thing was as well, I, I just wanted to be able to, uh, to work and be with people and just hang out with them and be in the ER and then just, just do it. So, so, uh, so I went there for a little bit more than two weeks and then I left. And I remember when I left, um, the head of mission who was there just said, hey, by the way, Dr. Joanne that you just saw, she's actually the international president. So the staff was like. <laughs> and, then, and then they thought about it. And then they, and they said, well, you know, because of the security situation, and as well, she didn't want you to treat her differently. She just wanted you to be one like all of us. And they just said, well, then she's cool. Um, you told me earlier that you had a set of uh, plans, priorities, projects, hopes for MSF when you became international president and that events got in the way. What were the, what were the things that you were hoping to, to do? What were your um, mandate goals? 
So my uh, running campaign slogan was patient first back then. And the reason why I came up with that was the fact that MSF was growing. Actually, it has grown so much <laughs> since I started. But, and then I was really worried that we were losing track of patients. Basically, we were opening a lot of, of offices around the world. We, we, we were having a lot of people in headquarters. And I said, where is the patient we care for in this growth? So, so that was one of the things. The second thing was um, I wanted to make sure that MSF was walking into the 21st century and using everything that the 21st century has to offer about, you know, in terms of technical medicine, uh, I'm the one who started with a few other people, the telemedicine project in 2009. But those kind of things that you just say, you know that you won't fix um, a, a political situation with, with, with the technical tools, but you know you can improve the situation. And that was my goal. The thing is, Ebola happened, and it basically hijacked my first 18 months as an international president. Um, you were talking about the amount that it's grown. My latest numbers that I saw are 45,000 people work in one capacity or another for MSF, most of them volunteers, operating in 71 countries. Um, uh, so it sounds like it was a huge logistical challenge, but then Ebola happened in West Africa, and part of your challenge for the first several months of that crisis was getting people to believe that, that it was a crisis. Um, what was that like, sort of raising the alarm and, and the rest of the world not paying much attention? Well, it was, um, it was a challenge because uh, I was, you know, you know, the thing is when you're international president, uh, everything you do the first year, you do it for the first time of your life. First press conference, first, you know, uh, in public conversation, first time you meet a president. So, um, so it was as well the first time I was doing those sort of diplomatic meeting with people trying to convince them something is happening and, and then, uh, and, and then we, I was learning as I was going along, and, and then we, at one point we just said, uh, so we, 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 like meeting the general director of the WHO was something quite, was not something we were doing really. And so I met her in spring and I just said, listen, there's an Ebola epidemic. And she said, yeah, well, it was Margaret Chan back then. So, uh, so we, we made a lot of joke about that, you know, Chan against Liu type of thing. But um, we love that. Uh, but um, the thing is, um, but there was no traction. And a lot of, of, of people told us back then that we were basically uh, uh, somehow crying wolf. And, and they were trying to play down things. And at one point, uh, one of uh, our epidemiologists said, it's out of control. It was in June. He just did an interview like this. The words slipped out of his mouth. And, and then people started to be a bit a bit uh, nervous, but nobody was moving. We have to remember this, the summer of 2014, it was the start of the war in, uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, and everybody was paying attention. There was as well, when there was a strike in Gaza, so lots of attention as well uh, on the Gaza Strip. So it was really hard to sell, and then at one point, we, I remember I was uh, with the operational director, and we just said, we're gonna go. We're gonna go. We're going to visit the three countries, and after that, we're going to go on an advocacy tour. It's exactly what we did. We went there for, th for like a couple of weeks, and it was like a disaster. Like, we, like people t t told us, you said, if nothing happened, 
we think we need to consider to leave. Mm. And then when my team started to tell me that, I said, oh boy, that's bad. And then we took a lot of difficult decisions back then. It's not me, but it's, it's, I was quite involved. But, but the thing is, it's just a good team, operational team. And at one point, we realized that, that we, were not, we were not enough. We, 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 could not, we, we couldn't do it. And so we took the very, very difficult decision of saying, you know what? All the good people we have in our Ebola center, we're going to take you away from those Ebola centers, and we're going to put you in a training place in Bruxelles and going to train other people because if we want to scale up, we've got to train people. And MSF, we say we're neutral, impartial, independent. We end up training everybody, governmental people, CDC people, military, everybody. And, and, uh, and, then, and then after that, uh, I remember we went to do a tour in New York with all the diplomatic uh, permanent mission in New York uh, at the UN. And I remember the first time was um, people looking at us like, well, maybe you can have something at the G G20. And we say, no. And then I remember meeting the undersecretary of the United Nations, and he looked at me and just said, well, well, Joanne. But he, and then he looked at me and just said, you know what? My wife called me last night. And she said, Jan, what are you doing about Ebola? He said, I saw that really, really young doctor talking about Ebola. You got to do something about this. And then Jan looked at me and just said, so I think it should be a priority. And then, and then few days after, he called MSF and he invited MSF to come and brief the United Nations. And this is something very, very peculiar because actually the United Nations for medical uh, topic should be briefed at the WHO, not by an external. They are being briefed by the agency of the UN. And it was like a huge, I would say, internal fight, I think. But we were finally invited, and uh, that's what sort of helped, anyway, to raise, the con I would say, uh, the alert on it. How bad could an epidemic like that get? What, if you hadn't managed to focus attention on it, what could have happened in, in those countries? You know, I'm not completely convinced that we can take the credit about all the focus. I think that as well, what happened is summer was over. Uh, uh, things calmed down in Gaza Strip and uh, people had time to pay attention. And so there's this. In addition, it was the time that there were two volunteers for a Samaritan person who got repatriated in the States, started to have people who infected repatriated in Europe, and all of a sudden people said, oh my God, it's coming to us. Yeah. We've got to do something. So I'm not sure. People, like I told you, were portraying us you know, as the poster child of Ebola. But I think that sometimes, you know, the planets align, and this is what happened. Okay. One thing that's happened since then that I don't think has gotten a lot, en enough attention is that I mean, there's, there's another Ebola outbreak underway, but there is a vaccine developed in Winnipeg that is making a big difference. Um, and it's not commercially available yet, but has been, been widely deployed in uh, the DRC during this. Can you talk about that a little bit? So this is, yeah. This is one of my favorite topics, sorry. No, but the thing is, is you have to understand that in 2014, 2015, we crave to have tools to do better. We crave for a vaccine, we crave for therapeutic solution. And, and when your doctor was, was engaged in life, 
And then the only thing you can do is to watch your patient dying and give them a little bit of fluids, IV, and then give them a bottle of water because at one point we were so overwhelmed. You're very happy to have those tools. So yes, this, this, this vaccine was developed by uh, Gary Cumminger, one of the researchers now working at Laval University. And, and, and right now in DRC, we have vaccinated more than 100,000 people with a vaccine. Mm. Uh, we are doing clinical trials and then we are trying four different therapeutic solutions. And despite that, we don't have the upper hand on the Ebola epidemic in DRC. And, and I always said that the Ebola epidemic is a very, very, very humbling, I would say, uh, thing to tackle because um, it's hard. It, it brings a lot of fear, and, and, and because of that, it, 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 it gets, it's a very multifaceted, complex uh, epidemic to, uh, to answer. Yeah. Uh, parenthetically, I want to ask about your ability to make quick decisions in MSF. I mean, it's a, it's a multinational organization. I read uh, briefing notes about it, and it, I, I got as far as it was founded by people from France, and there's a governing council, and I thought it must be hell. Um, <laughs> That's an euphemism. <laughs> is it, do you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get stuff uh, done? I mean, it sounds like you've got quite a bit of autonomy. <laughs> All the innocent people are looking at me. <laughs> wow, um, it's like herding cats. You know, basically, it, it, we talk about a global workforce of 45,000 people, yeah. but the reality, the way MSF is, it's five operational centers, which are basically the historical five centers who started to do operation, which is the French and then the Belgian, and then after that I think it was Netherlands, the Swiss, and Barcelona. And the thing is, is, is all those operational centers are autonomous. So they decide whatever they want, and they need to be accountable because now we fundraise money in 48 different countries, more than that actually, but we have 48 offices around the world. So the thing is, Sometimes, you know, like I, when I want to, to explain, you know, the, how it works is there's a bit of competition between the operational center. We're going to get there first, the French, Belgium, it's always like this. And then sometimes we just say we should be our best ally, not our worst enemy. And, then, and the way to explain that, um, for you to get a bit of, of an idea, is I say often that it's like five brothers who love the same women. This is how we, we work together. Um. But some people, because they say it's, it's a bit, you know, not great, you know, in terms of gender, it could be five sisters who likes the same man. I feel better already. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I'll never be that guy. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, and yet, you, I said earlier, you seem to have a lot of autonomy. You sneak into Syria, you go and you um, uh, make trouble with the WHO and so on. Is that... Um, it sounds like it's a matter of asking for forgiveness rather than permission. You just do it and then you see whether it's okay later a little bit. Yeah, you could say, yeah, somehow. Some people say only les enfants terribles. I don't know if you say that, naughty, naughty. Uh, they say enfants terribles. Enfants yeah. terribles. <laughs> We're a little bit like this. Okay. Um, now, the next really big crisis that you faced was uh, the U.S. military strike on the, uh, on the MSF hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan. Um, tell me that story. Well, it's about Kunduz. So Kunduz was, uh, it's northeastern Syria, 
and we have a, a trauma center called Kunduz Trauma Center. And basically, um, MSF lost five of our colleagues who were killed in, uh, in 2004. And it took us several years to come back and we negotiated our presence. Kunduz was one of the places we negotiated for two years at least to come back there. So everybody knew us, everybody, uh, uh, the Taliban side, the governmental side, the US side, everybody. And so we had a trauma center of about 100 beds. And, and, and everybody knew that if you were sick, if you have a broken bone, the place to be cared for was Kunduz Trauma Center. And in the valley, because there's no electricity, the only lit building is the hospital. So um, that, that night, uh, at around, uh, around 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, while the hospital is fully functioning, uh, the hundreds of of fail, the two operating uh, theatre are, are working, uh, ICU failed, and five airstrikes on the uh, main building where we had the emergency, the ICU, and the two operating theatres. 42 people died, 14 of our colleagues. And I think for MSF, it would be a black day, and it would be a before Kunduz and after Kunduz. Not that it did not happen before, but I think that an attack, a repeated attack, as precise as this, with that many loss of life, never happened in our history. This took a considerable amount of time during the night for, between the first attack and the, and the last one, and MSF was trying to contact the US military while this was going on. Did, did I, have that right? Yeah, it lasted about for about an hour, but we contacted the people in, in, uh, in Kabul, in, uh, in the Pentagon, uh, everywhere, and we just say, by the way, are you aware that you're bombing us? So, uh, yeah, and that, 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 did not, that did not stop. And then you, you have to understand that our staff uh, witnessed our patient to burn alive in, our, in their bed. That night, people like pull out patient, injured people. They improvise uh, OT on a, on a desk. They try to operate on our head of the hospital, uh, and he died. So yeah, tough, tough moment. Okay. And we were, we were terribly angry. I, I, I believe probably still are. Do you believe that that was, that was um, intentional? So we asked for uh, an international uh, independent fact-finding commission, which is something that is, that is uh, uh, basically held in, in, in Geneva uh, from, the, from the international humanitarian law, and then um, we didn't get it. Because the two countries who are involved needs to agree to it. Because if you want to go to an investigation, you need to have the investigation team to have access to the proof, and then so, the, the, the stakeholder needs to agree with it. So they didn't agree with it, they just said, no, we're gonna do investigation. So there were several investigations. There were some from the uh, Af Afghan coalition, they were from the US, the NATO, and MSF as well. But from the US, uh, they did an, uh, an, an, an investigation, which was not independent, and basically the, um, uh, the conclusion was a mistake at three level personal, technical, and standard of operation. Okay. 
And President Obama called you. How did yes. that call go? Well, the story behind the story is actually um, the event happened on a Friday. And um, you can imagine we were like stunned. But um, we, uh, and there were like few reactive lines in terms of communication. And so we, we decided to, to plan for uh, a press conference for the Tuesday morning. And on the Monday, our phone kept ringing. And, and if initially, it was, it was the, uh, the UN who called us uh, from the permanent house of uh, the permanent mission of the, of the United States. Back then, it was Samantha Power. And uh, they wanted to talk to me. And so our team said, no, our prison is not available. So next time, we got a phone call on the, on, on the Monday afternoon, say, the White House. And then they say, uh, we'd like to talk to your president. And say, she's not available. No, wait a minute. Our president wants to talk to your president. I said, no, she's still not available. And, and so uh, what we decided to do is we will do the call. But we, I've told them, I said, we cannot have the call before the press conference, because I'm sure they're going to use this. And so we, we, we agree for a phone call but after the press conference. And so basically, um, yes, we got the call. And, um, and then he, uh, President Obama gave his, uh, his sympathy to the, uh, to the families. And, um, and it was, like, of course, you know, a come, a come thing. And uh, although they told us before, you know, it's going to be a call between president, between, you know, we just personal call, private call. And, uh, and, and the thing is, one of the things is, is I actually never thank the President Obama. What I said is just that I acknowledge that you're giving sympathy to the people who have lost a loved one, the 42 families, and I will relay the message. And the reason why is I cannot thank someone who has killed 42 people, bottom line. So that was it. And this is how it was communi communicated, that the fact that the, in the international president of MSF is acknowledging a conversation with Barack Obama, the president, people were really upset about that. I still think it was the right thing to do. Afterwards, MSF started to say in its public communications, the doctor of your enemy is not your enemy. Um, is that something that you thought you would have to remind people of? Good question. No. But I think that we, we have to track back. You know, there's, there's, there's what we call uh, rules of, of, of war, which is called the International Humanitarian Law. And, and it's, it's clear that uh, there's, uh, there's this, the civilian structure should not be a target in doing, in a, doing a conflict. And then hospitals should, should be spared. Civilians should be spared. Hospitals should be spared. But the thing is, when this happened, uh, a lot of people, but you know, people just said, but wait a minute. Why aren't you treating, you know, injured Taliban? And they say, we're treating injured people. And it is clear the, 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 the international humanitarian law is, is a combatant who is injured, is a patient, and a patient is a patient. And so we, we, we push the thought one step further by saying, the doctors of your enemy is not your enemy. So that was like a bit of a slogan back then, yes. Okay. Um. Just a, you, your people are a target more and more frequently. Um, in 2004, the incident in Afghanistan that caused MSF to leave for a couple of years, that was, if I understand correctly, insurgent activity that, that, that killed four of your colleagues. Um, I may have the details a little bit off, but um, 
this seems to be the kind of world that we're in. I'm not at all seeking to draw an equivalence or to, or to justify anything. Uh, if anything, the U.S. should be uh, held to a far higher standard than insurgents in Afghanistan. But um, it, 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 it must drastically complicate your work. Well, the reality about the attacks on, on medical facilities is um, we don't really have a benchmark before. We just started to, to have a sort of a register for, for attacks on, 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 uh, on medical facilities or what we call the medical mission only very recently. So no benchmark cannot compare, really. But I think that we see that there's a bit of an erosion about some of the basic rules. And it comes with, with the counterterrorisms, the war on, on terror. And, and, and just recently, about a month ago, there were uh, a resolution, Resolution 2462, voted at the, at the United Security Council, who, um, who basically are saying that, that uh, humanitarian aid uh, could be considered as, as financial support to a terrorist group. So if you are working in, in the opposition area, that it's labeled as terrorists, then you can you could be considered as as being support, and and so we've been fighting back uh, for this, and so uh, so now what we have to do is 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 to to we have to deal an exemption for medical humanitarian aid, but for me that is the beginning of a slippery slope, for that, and each time we need to go and fight to get access. Okay. Um. It seems that, again, this is the way of the world. There used to be, conflict used to be easier to understand. It was industrial warfare between states and states. And in that environment, peacekeeping was easier to do because you could get the, 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 the two combatants to agree to terms under which peacekeeping could happen. Um, delivering medical assistance, you know, you, you knew who the local authorities were. Whereas in the current atomized climate of combat, insurgent groups, non-state actors, uh, uh, special forces operating on behalf of the NATO countries, it's, it, it, it just seems to be a far more complex puzzle and frankly far more dispiriting environment, far more discouraging environment to operate in. And I get the impression that this is a large part of your preoccupations these days. It's indeed it's indeed very, very challenging, and um, and uh, there's some, um, I would say, context where where we haven't managed to, um, to 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 carve a space for us to, to work, in in uh, and then we've we've pulled out, you know, in 2013, for example, from Somalia, uh, we uh, we 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 have modus operandi today that sometimes we. Uh, we use, you know, we really value proximity to people we care for with mixed team of international team. In some places today, we, uh, we do what we call, in our own jargon, remote uh, mission, meaning that we, we, we have a project in a hospital or in a camp, and then, uh, and then we do some sort of flash visit, but we don't have a permanent team there. So this is, this is the kind of, of compromise that we have done. The third big preoccupation of your time as president of MSF has been the migrant crisis that is sweeping the world, has uh, had an effect on politics here in Canada. Um, 
tell me about the scale of the challenge and the scale of the MSF response. Well, the reality for MSF, we've been working with migrants and refugees since the beginning of, of our time. So this is, this is working with displaced people, working, this, is, this is a bit the core of what we're doing. Um, I think what, what has changed uh, uh, over the last few years is the fact that, um, and it's, it's again the, um, what I was saying previously, is when things are closer from, from rich and wealthy nations, it, become, it becomes labeled as crisis. Uh, and this is what happened in 2015 with, uh, with the migrants across the Mediterranean Sea. There were like a million of people across, and they said, oh my God, they basically, you know, landing on our shore, what are we gonna do? It's a crisis. The reality is in 2011, there were 40 million refugees, and we never call it a crisis. 40 million is a big word, it's a big number. And now we're at 70. Uh, but, but, so this is one thing that we need to remember. So MSF in 2015, we decided to do search and rescue in the Mediterranean. We had three boats. Uh, we, we have uh, basically rescue uh, more than than, uh, than 50,000 people, and it's been tough. It's, it's, quite, it's, 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 it's quite something to do search and rescue. Um, uh, because people think they're gonna, they're gonna just die, and then you, you go in, they're in a little dinghy boat, and you go and rescue them. Uh, and, and so f I think what is, um, there's a couple of things that is, for us, sort of new challenges, to a certain extent, is the fact that, um, We've seen the migrant to be criminalized for what, for just fleeing is, 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 is where it comes from. A war, poverty, economic uh, uh, meltdown. And, and uh, in the past, people were accepting that uh, if you're a refugee, refugee migrant, it depends, you know, the label, but nevertheless, you have rights. It's not because you cross a border that you're not entitled to basic rights, which is protection and dignity. You know, this is the universal uh, human declaration, simple. So today, we, we are basically flouting those commitments. The other thing that we've seen as well with this is the communalization of people who bring solidarity or aid to people. Not only MSF, like the French guy who welcomes some migrants in his house, now he's in court. But as well, MSF, you know, we're brought in court in Italy. Uh, and then just recently, again, a uh, few, few weeks ago, uh, Italy said, we will give a fine for boats who are bringing, bringing migrants in our, uh, in our country. And I said, this is completely ridiculous. It is as if, you know, you will give a fine to an ambulance when they bring a patient to a hospital. So there's, there's, there's something that I think that we need to take stock of the fact that we are basically not living up, not upholding to the very, very basic, what I call uh, uh, um, common humanity that we have, that we have made commitment in the 20th century through the Declaration of Human Rights, through the, 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 the Refugee Convention 1951. Uh, I find it a scandal. People who are nervous about cross-border migration would say that at past a certain point, if too many people come, they swamp social services, they... Um, um, there are strains on uh, public security that y y you have to be able to moderate those flows or that 
the, the, the country's ability to absorb newcomers will be compromised. And we agree somehow with that, and this is why we were at the Marrakesh uh, Global Compact uh, meeting, where in the, the, I would say the core of, of, of the message for that, for that uh, compact, that pact was it needs to be safe, regular and orderly. We agree with that. We just want people to be treated with dignity for which reason they decided to leave. Like I always say, A, I'm absolutely not neutral on the topic. I'm a product of migration. So that's it. That's one, one thing. The other thing is, is, is with respect to, to, to migration is, I think that we need to remember, and I'm sure that many of you have children, is the fact that nobody would put their children in a dinghy boat if they wouldn't have a good reason. And the reason why people do that, well, people are ready to put their life at risk, where, they, 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 where, where women are ready you know, to be sexually abused on, on, on the way you know, from Honduras to, to the US, is because they're dreaming for future. And I always say there will be no wall tall enough to stop a parents to doing for future for their children. And it verifies itself everywhere, in Yemen, in Syria, in Canada, everywhere. One of the um, big challenges that you face in dealing with these populations is mental health stress and trauma and um, uh, suicidal thoughts. And um, is, is, have, have you had to build up your capacity to deal with those kinds of challenges? Absolutely, absolutely. And then I think the mental health now has been like a sort of a core response of wherever we intervene. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's part of what we call the minimal, minimal medical package. And, uh, and so, uh, so, so, so now, especially in places like, and I'm going to talk about that because I was, I was so, um, not traumatized would be a big word, but I was pretty shocked by it. And it's when I went to uh, the detention center in Libya a few years ago, where people are arbitrarily held in detention center that is not really detention center. They are basically a place where you park people that are arbitrarily put there because they, they're moving. They're moving across Libya. Or, or because they're not the, the, the right nationality and they're they just put there and then they are structured, they abuse women or rape. It just absolutely you know, a disgrace. And, and, uh, and then there, uh, we, we, we do MSF primary health care in those detention centers. But as well, the story that we hear from patients we care for, uh, it, is, it is clear that, that we have to care for our own team. So we have as well mental uh, support for, for our staff. Um, how do you recruit? Or, or do, do people just never stop applying, or, or is it a challenge to recruit? Um, I think that we are very, very privileged, MSF. It's extremely privileged. We're privileged because uh, just in terms of donors, we have more than 6.5 million donors across the world, and we have an incoming budget of 1.5 billion euro on a yearly basis, massive, big. Uh, and more than 94% of our money comes from you, 
from my father still. Uh, and so uh, that, that is great. In terms of recruitment, uh, we, um, here in Canada, basically on average, we send one person every day. And then we, 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 we actually, um, there's people often, you often get those emails or things or, or comment on my, on my Facebook, is, is there's often waiting line. People are waiting to go. And, and, and people hate it, especially physicians, because they, they put aside their practice and then they're on the waiting list. So where am I going to go? This guy is laughing because he's an anesthetist who went with us. So, so just to say, no. so we're very, very privileged. People want to, to join us, uh, uh, and, uh, and we, we treasure that. Okay. Um, six or eight months ago, MSF got into a uh, bit of a fight with the Australian government over their, their policy of processing refugee claimants offshore on an island called Nauru in the South Pacific. And uh, Nauru's theoretically autonomous government kicked MSF out because you were making too much uh, noise about that policy. People who want to move to Australia are, were held on that island while their claims were processed and it would take a very long time. How has that, uh, how has that conflict worked itself out? Well, we got kicked out. So this is all they sorted out. And then so we, 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 we tried to play trick. So we decided to do telemedicine and to continue to support people uh, in, in our mental clinic. And then, and then after, after two weeks, they passed a bill that we couldn't do telemedicine. So today, people are suffering. We, we had to let, leave behind you know, hundreds of patients. And one of the things, we've done a study, a survey when we were in Nauru, and, 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 and there's nothing worse for people is when they don't have a timeline when they don't know when things will end. When is this sort of nightmarish administrative, I would say, uh, 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 claim will have an end? Because I think it would be easier for people to know, you know what, it will just not happen. Find a plan B. No, it takes years, it takes months. One of the things we prove in, their, in, in our mental health clinic is the fact that people are mentally deteriorating. The level of, of suicidal uh, ideation was really high, uh, and, and as well the number of suicidal attempts, really hard for French people, and, and, it's, it's, and, and the fact that even children were attempting suicide. Um, it, it seems to me that the intervention there is, is much more starkly, obviously political. The decision to draw attention to that must have gotten an awful lot of people in Australia upset at you. That was a policy that the Prime Minister brought in 2001. It was tremendously popular. They kept reminding people of that policy to get re-elected. Um, uh, you've got to have some tough skin to, 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 to pick a fight like that. Right. Um, <laughs> tough skin. The reality is, is um, when you were asking you know, how things have changed, it's, it's, um, I think this is the climate that we're living in right now on the fact that um, what I've changed, that I've seen really, really vividly and, and throughout my, my, my two mandates, it's, it's how humanitarian aid is, is, is being perceived and, and how it's being as well um, somehow treated. And, then, and I call it the selective humanitarianism. It's basically we are tolerated when it fits the political agenda of a country uh, and when it doesn't fit, we are 
we are basically demonized or, 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 or being intimidated uh, or if they really are not happy about having us around, they attacked us and they, 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 they bomb us. So this is what is happening today. So that's one thing. The other thing is the fact that being involved in, with, with the migrant refugee crisis and being outspoken about it uh, has been really tough because um, we became unpopular. And in some places, uh, in some countries in Europe, people are demonstrating in front of our office asking for MSF to stop. This never happened to us. We lost donors over the last few years. Things that never happened to us because they were not happy. Like in my social media, every week I get a hatred message. So yeah, this is in the world we're living. Okay. I'm tempted to say only one a week. Uh, so far you're doing okay. Um, another are aspect- you get, Are you getting more? <laughs> I couldn't tell you, I'm off Twitter. Um, ah, you're good for you. <laughs> the, um, another aspect of this global debate over how to handle uh, wide-scale cross-border migration, migration is this global compact for migration, this multilateral uh, um, attempt to essentially remind people of basic humanitarian standards on this. But it has been severely criticized, including here in Ottawa, as an attack on national sovereignty and an attempt to impose on, on uh, sovereign governments the, um, the, the uh, Pollyanna-ish will of some doctors in Geneva uh, and some bureaucrats at the United Nations. Um, how do you see the global co compact on migration? No, for us, for MSF, uh, we... Um, you know, in MSF, every time we participate to those kind of big jig, it's a big internal debate. Because um, it's a love of fun for me. Because uh, it's, like, it's, like, like, it's like the peak time for herding cats. And um, because most of the time, 50% of the people don't want us to go, and 50% of us wants to go. They say, if you go, you're part of the establishment. It means you, you're with the power. Uh, still. Today, pe some people really are resentful of the fact that I went to the United Security Council for Kunduz for the resolution 2286. So, um, so Marrakesh was the same thing. For me, it was an imperfect uh, uh, text, and it should have been much stronger on the provision of, of basically the right to access to care when you're a migrant in your cell health care uh, access. Uh, so. Um, this is why we find it funny when, when here you know, we make a big fuss about it because we, you know, MSF, Canada Act on Health, 1984 guys, everybody has access to it, including, including migrants. So I don't understand that. For me, it's a false debate somehow. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Canada's role in these conflicts. They can seem impossibly distant and impossibly intractable, hard to settle. Um, and beyond the grasp of uh, individual Canadians and Canadian electorates to influence. What would you like to see more of from Canada? What do you talk, if you talk to Prime Minister Trudeau about your role, do you have a message to him? I'm laughing because Jason Nickerson here was the first sit there. He's our representative here in Ottawa. Oh, yeah. So he, like, he meets those guys all the time. <laughs> but um, I think that... Um, it's always very touchy 
all the topic and and we um uh and and, and i think we have developed some political savviness over the years of course we are enfant terrible but we we have some 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 uh, you know retenue you know we we hold back um but the thing is i was ready for like i think there is some sort of places especially with the withdrawal of the U.S. in many, many multilateral platforms for Canada to step in. For example, very simple example, last year, tuberculosis was a topic at the United Nations General Assembly. We wanted the Prime Minister to come because we thought that it would have been a very easy topic to champion. Few months before, the Prime Minister said, we're going to eradicate tuberculosis in the First Nation. Everybody remember that. He just needed to repeat it at the UNGA. So this for me is a missed opportunity, especially that we know that the agenda of Canada today is to win a seat at the United Security Council. You gotta be visible, man, if you wanna get that. Yeah, so I'm smiling because today's the International Day for Recognition of UN Peacekeeping. And the government put out a statement saying that Canada has adopted a leadership role in peacekeeping. And this is me talking, not you. But Canada has 192 peacekeepers deployed around the world. That puts us one step ahead of Djibouti. And, um, and, 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 and at some point, you need a government that's willing to walk the talk. Exactly. What can each of us do as, as individual Canadians? You know what? You, you have great opportunity. We are in election time. So this is the time that you have to make them promise a lot of things. Go for it, because you're a constituent of a country. So you're not like a migrant where you lost everything. You, you don't have a, a government to say, but now I think that we should, we should go for it. We should ask them, you got to deliver, man. Okay. What concretely would that entail? Well, I think that I think there's values in Canada, and I think that, uh, I think that we could champion more things in terms of health. It is, this is, you know, when you ask a Canadian to describe themselves, you know, with respect to American, the first thing they're going to say is about healthcare. And I think in terms of global health, Canada could play a much stronger role. And that will not be, you know, a very, I would say, um, uh, uh, dangerous journey. You talked about the, the retreat of the United States from multilateral roles do you think that that's something that will endure beyond the next election cycle? Do you think that this is a, a long-term decline in the, um, the role of the United States? Yeah, I'm not sure I can answer that, that question, but it just seems to be a trend. And I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think it's an opportunity. Because there's been an hegemony from the United States because they are funding so many things. Now the other countries need to step in because there's room. The other countries that, that, that seem uh, eager to step in include Russia and China. Is that a problem? <laughs> you know what? I'm Chinese somehow. I couldn't say that. But the thing is, that's a joke. But um, I, th I think that we need, we need to have diverse voices. And that include Russia, China, and Canada. Now, what about the future of Joanne Liu? You are not uh, going you to... I knew that. <laughs> You're not going to have this job after June? Yes. What are, you, what are you thinking about? Um, I, I haven't completely you know, thought through this. Um, so election will happen in, at the end of June. Uh, there's five amazing candidates who are, are, are wanting this job. And, um, and so transfer of power will happen over uh, probably end of summer, beginning of September. 
And um, I think the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to unplug. No more Twitter account, no more Facebook, nothing. I'm going to take some vacation. Um, I think um, I'm going to sort of uh, reconnect with my loved one, especially my partner. Actually, my, the, the brother of my partner is here, so he's probably watching me, making sure I'm saying something nice about my boyfriend. And then, um, and then I think after that, um, I, I kept my job at St. Justin in Montreal. Uh, and I have my uh, accreditation as a, as a professor there. And so, um, will I go to full practice, medical full practice? I think it's going to be hard after what I've went through. So, uh, so this is one thing I've decided to stop to lie to myself. Is I'm going to go back only to do shift in, in, at Saint Justin. So now it's to figure it out um, what I'm going to find that would be challenging enough, and I have the feeling that I can still contribute in terms of the international global health challenges. I'm sure you will be and have been approached by no end of people with all kinds of ideas for things you could do. Um, I want to. Thank you for stopping here on your Canadian visit and letting us know a lot more about your work. Uh, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, and our partners, the people at the National Arts Centre who gave us this amazing room every time we've asked, the um, uh, good folks at CPAC who are helping us get the message out, and our uh, loyal uh, sponsors at the Canadian Bankers Association who have been with us from the beginning. Um, we've got a reception next door. Stick around, chat about what you've heard. And I want to thank everyone here for coming out. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.